you know, just being in a mountain environment when the earth starts moving like that, it makes you feel pretty vulnerable, you know. Just kind of staring in awe at the, the widespread avalanche activity. Uh, we stepped outside and the first thing I saw was something that I think I'll always remember, which is the trees were just swaying side to side and, you know, they were all just caked in, in the storm snow and that snow was just flying and exploding everywhere. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brew. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's pretty wild to think about how much has changed in our lives in the last year. On today's episode, we're going to look back at an event that happened a year ago today, on March 31st, 2020. We were all probably just grasping the reality of the global pandemic, the start of the global pandemic. Many operations seasons were ending early at that time, and people were hunkering down in quarantine to try and flatten the curve of the spread of the coronavirus. A year ago to the day, uh, March 31st, 2020, there was an earthquake-induced avalanche cycle that happened in the Sawtooth Mountains. Scott Savage from the Sawtooth Avalanche Center reached out to me a couple weeks after this event and said, hey, this would be a cool story to talk about on the podcast, and I totally agreed. And so I was excited to sit down on a Zoom call with Chris Lundy and Scott Savage, both forecasters at the Sawtooth Avalanche Center, as they told me about what their experiences were um, with the earthquake and then subsequent avalanche cycle. So um, maybe six months after that, I, I was able to sit down with Ben Vandenboss, um, another forecaster for the Sawtooth Avalanche Center, and get his perspective as well, um, which was kind of nice to have a, a bit of time for those guys to pour over some of the data that they had collected and collaborated with with some other researchers um, to get a better picture of, of what happened with both the snowpack setup and then the seismic activity and then the subsequent avalanche activity, the widespread avalanche cycle that happened there in, in the Sawtooth area. Um, so. We get three different forecaster perspectives on this unique event, and I hope you enjoy this day in history on the Avalanche Hour podcast. So just before 6 o'clock p.m. on Tuesday, March 31st, 2020, um, a 6.5 magnitude earthquake shook central Idaho and the surrounding area. The earthquake's epicenter was in the Sawtooth Avalanche Center's Banner Summit Zone, about 20 miles northwest of the town of Stanley. 
The earthquake occurred at the end of a major spring snowstorm that dropped two to three feet of new snow in the mountains adjacent to the earthquake. The avalanche danger was rated at high on the day of the earthquake. And Scott, I was hoping you could run us down on a little bit of a, a brief seasonal snowpack history that you guys were dealing with in the sawtooths this year uh, leading up to this earthquake and, and subsequent avalanche cycle um, on March 31st. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. Sounds good. I'll, I'll give you the elevator talk here to, to not bore everyone. So throughout the our forecast area, um, which is a little bit over 3,000 square miles, goes from down south of Bailey and over by Fairfield all the way up north of Stanley and includes that, like you said, includes that Banner Summit area, which is near the Cedar. Um, we had a, a classic really low low snowfall uh, early season, early winter and fall, so had some really well-developed depth water layers, um, much more so than, than usual. And then had a pretty good storm in mid-January in the northern areas up around where the earthquake occurred, so we had a, a fairly long return period deep slab cycle in the northern Sawtooth and Banner Summit area where, um, you know, Chris and some of the other folks that have been around Stanley for a while hadn't seen anything like that in, in at least 20 years, mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say. So a lot of, you know, two-meter-ish crowns all over the place in the mid-January cycle. Uh, not as much. That storm was kind of a northwest flow, so it didn't do as much in the farther south zones that we forecast for um so they kind of got left out of the fun there and they just stayed really dry and then throughout february february was i think probably record low or near record low parts of the forecast area got a total of one to four inches of snow in the month that's not water that's snow and uh a big difference from last year when we had you know over 100 inches of snow in February everywhere throughout the forecast area. So we had, you know, going into March, had pretty much of a, a of a dud, an entirely faceted snowpack down south, and a lot of good um, upper pack weak layers in the northern area, up around the northern Sawtooth and Banner Summit area. And then March, we had some, some storms here and there, and then kind of typical spring where you get some nice crusts and near-surface facets in the dry spells in between storms. So kind of a, a mishmash of weak layers, crusts, and decomposing snow in the upper part of the snowpack leading up to the event in the end of March. And then that storm, like you said, it dropped about two to three feet of snow, two to two and a half inches of water in the northern part. So the Sawtooth, mountains west of Smiley Creek, and the mountains west of Stanley, and the Banner Summit area. And significantly less, like six to 18 inches of snow about a half an inch to an inch and a half of water in the mountains around Galena Summit and headed south towards Ketchum and uh, Haley. And in that storm, temps were fairly seasonal, so it was raining down in the valleys around Ketchum and Haley, kind of upper 20s for temps at pass level, and not a ton of wind with that uh, with that storm preceding the, the earthquake. So we had, you know, we were expecting some avalanche activity for sure, just because we did have some layers that were already showing signs of being unstable before the that big storm in the upper part of the snowpack. But uh, we didn't really have deep issues up there in the sawtooths and 
um, banner summit area going into it, the, the deeper basal facets down along the snowpack had, you know, it snowed enough that they were way down there and had, had healed significantly on the slopes that didn't release during that storm in January. So Ben Vandebos was the forecaster on duty that morning to write the avalanche forecast on March 31st, 2020, um, the morning before the earthquake and subsequent avalanche cycle. Ben, what do you recall about that morning and, and what do you what was stewing around in your head while writing that forecast? Yeah, thanks, Caleb. Um, well, I wrote, I had written the forecast the day before as well, uh, and had been, you know, obviously doing a lot of watching of the weather like we usually do and could see this big storm coming, you know, probably a week out and had been, you know, over two months in our area since we really had much of any, any major storm events. I mean, it had been, I think our last high danger day was in middle of January. So you could see this thing coming, you kind of knew it was coming and you're, you know, trying to get your brain, brain into the the mindset of, well, this is how we deal with, you know, actual actual avalanche hazard instead of the kind of the slow doldrum in between sort of sort of problems. And so, yeah, sitting there, sitting there that morning, looking at weather, uh, watching how much snow had already fallen, and having pretty good familiarity with the fact that the the weather pattern that was going on often really heavily favors the north end of the Satus there. Um, I, it, it was apparent that we were going to have, you know, there were going to be large avalanches occurring. Um, how many of them and how widespread that was, was a little bit of a question mark. Uh, another big question mark with that storm was amount of wind that looked like there was going to be maybe a lot of upper elevation wind, but pretty calm down lower. So yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about different, different conditions you'd find at upper elevation versus middle elevation. Um, how much snow we were going to need to really push a, a relatively stable snowpack into being unstable. Cause we had, you know, we had a few, few mid-March, you know, irregularly distributed facet crust layers, but, but for the most part there, it was a relatively boring snowpack since we flushed all that deep stuff in the mid January deep slab cycle. So those are the kind of the main, the main considerations is like what, how much water are we actually going to get and how much water are we going to need to, really hit the hit that point on the scales well i was down in i was forecasting in the wood river valley that day and uh put out the forecast um felt like maybe i'd been a maybe a bit of an over forecast uh, maybe a bit conservative but you never never exactly know and then sat down in the wood river valley and watched it not snow at all which is what it does during these storms, you know, like a couple, couple snowflakes here, or there, maybe a sprinkle of rain and then patchy, patchy clouds and blue sky poking through. So you're sitting there kind of kicking yourself a little bit and towards the end of the day, but at the same time, watching, watching, you know, telemetry data, watching remote weather stations, seeing the snow just absolutely stacking up at the North end of the range. And so about midday, I decided to drive up there and, you know, see, see for myself what kind of a day it was. And, you know, you leave on a leave on a dry road, and you get up there, and the road's a lane and a half wide, and there's, you know, two and a half feet of snow on the ground. So starting to feel, you know, feeling considerably more comfortable with with the forecast at that point. Um, and the the spot I went skiing that day was actually maybe five miles from from the eventual epicenter that evening. Uh, went up, found one big one big natural that had gone during that storm. I was able to 
safely access the crown. But beyond that, visibility was basically zero. Couldn't really tell, but had a, had a pretty good sense that you didn't want to be out in anything, under anything, or <laughs> really exposing yourself to hazard at all. And then I came down, uh, skied down that day, or probably a little over three feet of snow where I was, three feet of new snow. Skied down, I'm driving back, and maybe a half hour later, my phone starts exploding with, you know, texts coming in and calls coming in and people wondering if you're okay, you know, Scotty and Chris and Ethan all checking in, making sure everybody's out of the mountains and that sort of a thing. So it was an interesting the earthquake happened while I was driving, but since I was driving, I didn't feel it. And I'd just been in that area, but I wasn't, wasn't there anymore. So it was an interesting, really that whole 12 hour period was kind of an interesting brush with the <laughs> brush with the overlap of a couple of wild natural events. Chris, I was wondering if you could recount, you know, what your day was like on the 31st and then leading up to that earthquake and, and your experience of being in the mountains during that event. Yeah, sure, Caleb. Um, on the on March 31st, I was actually on a day off from the Avalanche Center, and I was wearing my other hat, which is as a, a co-owner of Sawtooth Mountain Guides. And uh, we have a yurt in the northern Sawtooth that we uh, we rent out and run trips from. And as a result of the, the whole COVID thing, it had been shut down for a couple weeks. And, you know, with this major storm, there was nobody up there to, to dig it out. So, my wife and I uh, hiked into the hiked into the yurt on the 31st, and you know just finished digging it out from about 20 inches of new snow, and uh, we're just in the yurt with a warm fire and uh, uh, just kind of cracking a beer and drinking a little wine, and that's when the earthquake hit. And um, yeah, it's interesting just talking to my wife, our kind of different perspectives on it, but you know I'm almost embarrassed to say that at first I didn't know it was an earthquake. You know, just being kind of an avalanche guy, my very first impression was that, you know, there was there was some massive avalanche that was happening, which uh, wasn't really a rational thought. You know, just, you know, this is a big storm, but it wasn't capable of producing an avalanche like I thought I was hearing. And uh, my other thought was, you know, the yurt was about to get destroyed, which is also irrational since it's been there for about 30 years and it's not really in the run out of any avalanche paths, but... Uh, we stepped outside, and the first thing I saw was something that I think I'll always remember, which is the trees were just swaying side to side, and, you know, they were all just caked in, in the storm snow, and that snow was just flying and exploding everywhere. And, um, you know, I think eventually I realized, yeah, this isn't an avalanche, this is, you know, an earthquake. And, um, you know, then almost, you know, very shortly after the earthquake began, we started hearing the rumbling of just avalanches. And once I heard the rumbling of avalanches, I was like, okay, that's definitely avalanches. Like I know that sound. And, um, you know, talking to folks, uh, our neighbors and friends that live in Stanley, they even heard avalanches in town, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you're, you know, five to five to 10 miles from the mountains and starting zones as the crow flies. So it's pretty, pretty significant that they heard that as well. So even after the earthquake stopped and the trees stopped shaking, the you know the avalanches continued to run for, you know I don't know maybe 20 or 30 seconds. It was it was pretty significant, and uh, it took a lot longer for the adrenaline to go down. It's you know just being in a mountain environment when the earth starts moving like that, it makes you feel pretty vulnerable. You know all that stuff you learn about being you know being at safe spots and 
you know, I'm not in Avalanche terrain right now. It seems like that starts to go out the window when things as, as you know, rare as this earthquake um, occur. That definitely made me feel pretty vulnerable at that point. But, you know, after that, our, our phones just kind of exploded with texts and, you know, friends checking in and neighbors checking in. And, you know, we, we kind of had to deal with some things on the home front just to make sure our, our house was still standing. Um, but after that, as we kind of dealt with just sort of the more immediate life demands, um, we definitely started thinking about the next day because I think already we knew that, that the storm was supposed to clear out and we were likely to have a, a pretty nice morning, a pretty clear morning the next day on April 1st. And uh, immediately got pretty excited about what we were likely to see uh, when we went out the next day. And so what did that look like, Chris, the next day? You guys you guys spent the night at the yurt and then went, went for a ski tour or just headed back to town, or what did that look like? Yeah, the next day, you know, once we felt good that things were okay on the home front, uh, we, decide, we did decide to stay. We did, we did, we did cross our mind to uh, exit that night, but we decided to stay, could resist the, the possibility of seeing all these avalanches the next day. And, you know, the first thing that, that came to mind was, um, you know, the, the common destination from the, the Williams Peak Hut is a place called Skier Summit. And it's about a 1,500-foot foot climb from the yurt, and it gives you just awesome views and a couple of adjacent basins. But there is a, there is a, a small slope in the trees that threatens the, the typical uptrack. And on high-danger day, uh, we typically don't go up that uptrack. So that was kind of the first decision thing we had to make before even leaving the yurt the next morning. But as the sun came out in the morning and it dawned clear and we're looking around, we saw that that slope and the trees had already avalanched, uh, which was you know good for us because it meant that our, our path to the skier summit was relatively, it was much safer. Uh, but that's also significant because I've only seen that run twice, you know, in the sort of 10 years that I've been going up there. That'll be the second time I've seen it run in the 10 years. So we were able to, uh, and then there was a couple other avalanches visible just from the yurt straight away in the morning. And we were able to uh, skin up to skier summit and along the, along that, you know, just putting in that uptrack and moving through the terrain, we saw some pretty interesting things. Um, it seemed like anything that was over about 25 degrees had pretty obvious cracking in the snowpack, like that, you know, it was like, the slope had, you know, the snowpack had kind of shattered on those slopes. And as you moved, you know, stuff that was probably approaching 35 degrees, seemed like most slopes had avalanched in some way, shape, or form. Um, so the first avalanche we came to was the one that uh, threatens the uptrack. And uh, it became, it was pretty apparent that it had a different look to it. Like the hang fire was all just shattered and broken up. So it just seemed like, you know, 25 to 30 degrees, everything just kind of cracked, you know, 30 to 35 degrees stuff kind of cracked and moved. And then once it hit about 35 or, you know, maybe that, that, you know, magical 37 degree angles when stuff actually avalanched, but it didn't need to be particularly steep. And it also, we looked at the, the fraction line of that one and it seemed like it was just breaking in the storms at the base of the storm snow at the old new interface. That so was also interesting. That was another question we had was, you know, where, where was this stuff going to break within the snowpack? And, uh, you know, we continued moving up through the terrain and got up to skier summit. And once we got into those basins, it just, the, just the carnage became apparent. You could tell why people in town heard avalanches. Cause I bet that pretty much any slope that was 
steeper than, you know, 37 to 40 degrees, you know, and there's a lot of that terrain in the Satsus. There's a lot of rocky terrain where snow is barely clinging to it, and snow moved off of those slopes in some way. So whether it was a slab, whether little hanging snowfields peeled off, whether it was just, you know, loose snow avalanches that got shit shaken off, like you saw all that. But um, there's a lot of snow that came down off the steep mountains, for sure. So yeah, we saw a number. Uh, we saw a number of crowns. We saw an avalanche that um, hit uh, a, a kind of alpine lake that was right below us. And whether it was the impact of the avalanche or the actual earthquake, but the, the lake around the perimeter was cracked. So that was interesting. Uh, so I did see some rock fall, um, and there was a lot more of that apparent as people were were taking photos of the, the aftermath. And um, yeah, it just became, and we didn't see anything particularly large. You know, all the avalanches were, you know, sort of in the D2 range on average. Some, you know, maybe do, you know, two and a half, definitely a few threes as we uh, looked on a bigger scale throughout the mountain range. But it was mostly, you know, the storm snow, so two to three foot crowns. Um, but there was just, all, there was a ton of them. It's like, like I said, almost every, every slope that was steep enough had snow moving off it wow i'm sure that was pretty impressive to to wake up and and go for a walk and and observe all those avalanches scott what was your experience during the the earthquake where were you yeah so much less exciting than what chris had going on i was uh out in the field looking at the snow around um galena summit so uh, about halfway from ketchum to stanley and uh unfortunately i feel cheated i missed it because i was driving down off the pass i was you know probably in, in the truck about uh five minutes before it happened so it got down to when i was back in cell range and um my phone started lighting up too with uh you know people texting are you okay and everything so i pulled over and got on the phone for a while and i, I didn't feel it happen i was driving down in the truck and it was uh at the tail end of that storm, so still snowing a little bit and low cloud ceiling and skies were obscured, so it didn't see any any sign of avalanches driving down out of the mountains. Um, one of the first calls I made was to our district ranger, Kurt Nelson. He's the Ketchum, Ketchum Ranger District uh, ranger, and uh, just to let him know that we were all okay. He's like, holy cow, yeah, that's crazy. And, and he was down in Haley, and up in the second story of his house, which is you know about 75 miles south of the epicenter, and he could feel his house swaying and shaking, so he knew right away what was going on. Um, really down south, though, there there weren't any uh, you know obvious signs that something had happened, like where, where Chris was, where he had trees shaking. Probably the what I think is the closest call that we had that we've heard about anyhow within the whole forecast area. There were some folks soaking in a, in a hot springs, it's Geyer hot springs, it's a few miles west of Ketchum, uh, just adjacent to the, you know, half mile away from the base area, the Sun Valley of the ski area there. And these folks are just sitting in the hot pot. They uh, could feel a little bit of, you know, some motion. They, they knew what was going on. And a wet loose avalanche released just upstream of them. Uh, not huge as, you know, a few hundred feet off the valley floor. But that took out a few trees, and then the debris and the trees blew across a creek just upstream of them. Um, and that's, I think, 63 miles from the epicenter where that occurred. So that's the the um, farthest 
confirmed avalanche activity that was, you know, for sure earthquake related that we uh, have heard about so far. The next day dawned blue and I just immediately started driving around, snapping photos, documenting whatever I could, you know, not really sure how long our little window of visibility is going to last and just kind of staring in awe at the, the widespread avalanche activity and spending a lot of time uh, thinking about the that deep slab cycle that we'd already had in January and what I might be seeing if we hadn't hadn't pushed the snowpack to the breaking point already, because most of what we saw was were new new old problems, you know, just failures at the base of the new snow or or the upper bit of the new snow is kind of density inverted. So that was most of the activity, and but I did spend a lot of that a lot of the following days kind of dreaming about or pondering on what the mountains might look like if, <laughs> if those things could go inside it. So over the next few days, you were documenting um, all of the crown lines that you saw. And how many avalanches did you see subsequent to this cycle? Yeah, I spent, spent a good bit of time. Really the next 10, 10 days, we had okay visibility here and there, a little bit of, little bit of snow here and there, but pretty decent visibility. And I cataloged, I think, 474 uh, slides in my little uh, little personal database between me and then the other ones that folks at the Avalanche Center had seen and that we'd had reported to us. Right. And those are, I mean, you're, yeah, you can only, only travel so far. Obviously, there's a huge amount of terrain that you don't cover. But those, you know, near the earthquake, those were, every, every slope had multiple crowns on it, essentially. Right. And, and from talking to... To Chris and Scotty, it sounds like mostly new old interface, or as you mentioned as well. Um, so, so mostly ones and twos. Did you see any larger threes, D threes, anything like that? Yeah, exactly. Lots of lots of ones and twos. Um, definitely some some size threes where the terrain was favorable. Um, I actually worked uh, closely with a student at MSU, a guy named Zach Keskinen who's working on some pretty interesting remote sensing work, trying to detect avalanche events uh, from satellite data. And uh, the method he's using essentially can identify events about size two-ish and bigger. And so in the, in the terrain that I wasn't able to observe, there seemed like there were maybe more larger avalanches there, like on the west side of the Satus, or the, yeah, the west side of the Satus, the side of the range that you don't really see. Um, and spent some time thinking about why that might be, uh, whether that is reflecting a pattern of maybe kind of like a early, early season snowfall pattern. Um, perhaps that, that deep cycle in mid January didn't quite get weighted enough to go off there, but the avalanche made it or the earthquake, excuse me, uh, was enough to trigger some of those deeper slides or, some of it might may just be due to the terrain because you have larger, longer avalanche paths on that side of the range. And, you know, even, even small or relatively small loose snow slides, you know, you shake snow loose and then let it run down a 2,500, 3,000 foot fall line. You're going to pick up a lot of snow along the way and make pretty big debris piles, which is what, what Zach's looking for with his, his remote detection scheme. But for the, yeah, like you say, for the most part, they were smaller slides. Um, did observe a few places that had, uh, you know, directly observed things that had actually failed on that weak snow at the ground. Uh, essentially, yeah, you know, failing 30 centimeters, 20 centimeters off the ground and 
wiping out a couple meter snowpack. Hmm. And were you, Ben, were you able to, to draw some correlations was, was, were Zach's remote sensing data, did those line up with, with avalanches that you had witnessed as well? Um, you know, like, could you, could you correlate a remote sensed avalanche with, with a crown line that you saw in the flesh? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of, a lot of overlap between our, our data sets. Um, it's interesting because on, on mine, you can see these areas where there are avalanches all over and he's not picking up anything, but then where you have little longer paths that maybe collect more material on the way down or bigger crowns, then, you know, he's picking up each of those. So it seemed like, seemed like as long as you got past that kind of size two ish threshold threshold, uh, his detection scheme was pretty darn effective. Chris, uh, just, Another question for you. Did you, you said that most everything that you saw was failing on the new old interface? Anything stepping down into the those uh, persistent weak layers in the within the upper half of the snowpack? Uh, yeah, that was certainly an inter- uh, question that we were interested in, in in answering after the earthquake, and something that was on my mind as we headed out. Uh, as Scott mentioned, we had some pretty significant basal facet layers that led to some deep slab avalanches in the early season in the sawtooth and we really hadn't uh you know i don't i wouldn't say we had written them off you know because those things are always kind of fair game with a, a big load or a big warm-up but um it didn't seem that we had anything in the sawtooth that ran on the deeper weak layers it might have been there was a couple little sort of blobs that maybe peeled out of rocks um you know that kind of looked like they were basically failing at the ground, but they were in sort of complex, you know, really rocky type terrain. Um, an interesting thing I noted uh, sort of related to your question is that, you know, a lot of these cracks that we were seeing, you know, where the snowpack had kind of looked like it almost shattered, um, you know, immediately you're thinking that those are probably cracking on whatever weak layer the avalanches ran on. That was sort of my first impression. Um, but as we poked around at some of those cracks, you know, one of those cracks on a, on a shallower south-facing slope that was about 150 centimeters uh, deep, I was able to track that track clear to the ground. And it wasn't like there was a, on that south aspect, it wasn't an obvious weak layer at the ground. So it just seemed like it was cracking just all the way to the ground. And then on a, on a deeper, you know, shadier aspect where the snowpack was, you know, approaching two and a half, three meters, I tracked a crack not not all the way to the ground i was a little too lazy to dig that far down and the crack was starting to close enough that it wasn't that obvious but what was clear was that it was cracking much deeper than the actual avalanche that i was uh was right below where i was digging so these cracks were going deeper than the avalanche activity was running so i thought that was that was pretty interesting and whether these cracks were going down to a deeper weak a deeper weak layer or whether they're just they're just going to the ground it's you know it's a pretty unknown phenomenon so adding on to what Chris is describing with that cracking, one question that that we have that hopefully we'll we'll answer and talking to some some really smart folks from the geology world and and snow world is, you know, these cracks are they going from the top down or are they coming from the ground up? Mm. Yeah, my 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 thought on the deep the deep cracking in the snowpack, uh, and. It's really, it's really bizarre to see in some sense because we're used to associating fracturing in the snowpack with weak, with weak layers and you know maybe density differences between a slab and underlying snow or that sort of thing. But when we were looking at 
my sense for those deep cracks is essentially you're looking at what happens when you shake a, a relatively homogeneous medium, a deep consolidated snowpack, and then you just shake it back and forth. And as it goes back and forth, and in order to accommodate that movement, those, those cracks open up essentially uh, widest at the surface and then tapering down towards, towards nothing at the ground, but they don't really, they, they didn't seem to tie back into any, you know, as avalanche forecasters or backcountry travelers or anyone curious about the snow, we, we think of those, we think of fracturing happening kind of parallel to the ground um, because that's, that's the problems that we're, that we're worried about essentially. And this essentially was a, in, in my read is a completely different sort of, you know, a cracking. We've, we've just shattered this, the snowpack because you shook it so hard, not because there's some sort of uh, weakness in there that, that, that is driving that. It's more the, just the physical process of, of shaking the snow like that. Um, Scott, are you aware of, of other seismic activity creating avalanches within the recent history in other parts of the world? Yeah, I, I, I didn't do a ton of research looking into that, but, uh, you know, kind of quickly threw something together the, for the next day to, um, to kind of give an overview of what people know about earthquakes and avalanches. And uh, there have been a lot of cases, you know, documented cases. I think it was a 2010 paper that had at least 22 documented earthquake-induced avalanches, and most of those tended to be larger events, the ones that they pick up in the in the literature. Um, the the classic one, there's a, an avalanche over in the Himalayas that caused some big avalanches and ice falls that came down through the Everest base camp and killed, I believe it was 22 climbers and support crew members mm-hmm. um, several years ago. Um, there was the one in Christchurch, New Zealand, that definitely had some avalanche activity associated with it that wasn't in the distant memory. Um, so, yeah, these, these things definitely happen, um, you know, in all the big mountain ranges all over the world. There, there tend to be, you know, seismic faults um, associated with them, so whether it's the Andes, Alaska, the Alps, New Zealand, the Himalayas in Asia, Russia, over in Turkey, um, this does happen for sure. I think what may have been a little unique with, with this one, this particular event is that one had happened within a, an avalanche forecast center's footprint. So you have a lot better, you know, more high resolution data on what the snowpack's like and what's happening for avalanche activity. And it wasn't just huge avalanches that it was, you know, these fairly, shallow, fairly small in, in the grand scheme of things, avalanches, but just a, you know, a huge volume, volume of them. So a really, you know, high frequency, but relatively small size event. And I, I haven't read anything that really characterizes something like that, where you have tons of avalanches and aren't huge. The ones that pop out in the, the little bit of looking around in the literature that I did tend to be, you know, really large, remarkable events that were caused by earthquakes. As far as I can find, it's the only documented event where the where you have an earthquake inducing avalanche activity and it occurring during high danger or during a time when you have a really unstable snowpack. So I think, yeah, that, that influenced some of what we, kind of some of the response that we saw. Looking back on um, the earthquake, 
and talking to some folks at the USGS, was there were they expecting this earthquake? Um, it was actually kind of a. There's a lot of ongoing work uh, that geologists are doing, kind of trying to piece together the story of this earthquake. Uh, it did occur in an area that has some historic seismicity. Uh, a couple larger earthquakes in the in the 20th century, but it's not on that. Uh, it's not along the mapped end of a fault. Um, so it's not there, the Sawtooth Fault is nearby. There's a lot of discussion going on whether the Sawtooth Fault was the fault involved or isn't the fault involved. But you're kind of off the mapped end of the Sawtooth Fault at that point, kind of off the north end of it. Um, in addition, the the ground motion observed doesn't really match exactly what you'd expect from the fault as as the fault is understood. So there there really really is a lot of uncertainty regarding that. And also it's in an area where there there aren't a not a huge amount of seismic stations around. So the the farther you are from seismic stations, the you know the less robust your the data that you're able to to gather or the conclusions you're able to make as a geologist are. Do you guys feel like you're you're kind of coming out on the other end of this event with with more questions than answers at this point. Yeah, we really do feel like there there are a lot of questions to be answered, and it's going to be a. You know, I think I feel really fortunate working in this area. It seems like something really weird happens down near every year that I've been up here for the last five years or so. That uh, gives you a lot of a lot of things to think about, and kind of the spring and summer and do some reading and try to try to learn as much as you can about uh, the science behind what you saw while you were out there. So this is a, definitely fits that bill. No, I agree. I think, um, you know, the first, our first reaction was just, was more of an observational reaction. We were just trying to get a handle on, on what in fact happened. And uh, at that point, you know, trying to gather data, but it just brings up, you know, all of us I think are in this field because we're inherently curious and uh, yeah, I think our observations certainly led to more questions than answers. Um, yeah, I've got definitely lots of lots of interesting things that I've you know little little mental rabbit holes that I've gone down into in the in the months following this, just thinking about it. I think a few of the obvious ones are what you know how big of an avalanche do you need, or how big of an earthquake do you need to trigger avalanches? Um, lots of thinking about kind of like the the ground surface, uh, ground surface snowpack interaction, like how, you know, how well bonded that is obviously would drive how much shaking you're seeing in the snowpack. Um, like, are you going to see different responses from, from earthquakes when, when you're dealing with kind of like a wet, sticky maritime snowpack that's well bonded to the ground as opposed to a dry continental, you know, just facets to the ground and it's not really, attached um let's see yeah lots of kind of yeah minimum size of avalanche to induce or of earthquake to induce avalanche activity particularly when dealing with uh with weak weak layers of snow uh, like what do you how hard do you actually need to shake something to to make it break and i think yeah a lot of a lot of those are just kind of conclusionless <laughs> Conclusionless thoughts are hard to hard to draw any sort of real specific conclusion just because the you know you're looking at a singular event the overlap of two natural phenomena that 
very, you know, very rarely occurs, at least in kind of a human time scale. As a result of this event, um, is there, are there conversations ongoing with the USGS to alert avalanche centers if there's potential seismic activity in the future? Um, nothing, nothing specific like that set up, but I do think, I, I do think that's an area where probably future, future work will occur. It's interesting in that earthquakes are such infrequent events and then they overlap even more infrequently with, with having a snowpack on the ground that you, it's easy to kind of push it off to the, <laughs> you know, for essentially forget about it or, or not worry about it because they're so, in a sense, they're really uncommon. Um, my, my thought on what the, maybe like a way, a way to go forward is we, we know that earthquakes, they're, they're not particularly predictable. They're predictable in bulk, you know, that, you know, a given fault might have X amount of earthquakes every 100 years or something like that. But the, what happens after the earthquake is moderately predictable. So there, there are these aftershock sequence that occur. So you get kind of a major main shock. And then uh, the, the two sides of the fault are essentially trying to accommodate that movement. And they're settling back into a, a moderately stable conformation until the next big earthquake, you know, 50 years down the line or whatever. And uh, geologists can say, we expect to see X amount of earthquakes of this mag or aftershocks of this magnitude following this earthquake. Um, and that's, you know, something that I hadn't thought of beforehand, uh, but knowing, you know, like, let's say this earthquake could happen in November or something like that. And you know, you've got an entire season ahead of you and you're likely to see 15 magnitude four plus aftershocks. Well, every time, I mean, I think if you combine the, the likelihood of that overlap that on an unstable snowpack, at a certain point, you reach a threshold where you probably should be saying something or, you you know, it's a message that you want to convey somehow to your user group. Um, we are at the, if you run the, kind of run the math, we've, we've hit the, the predicted number of aftershocks at this point. That doesn't really mean anything. There's still... They're ongoing. There's actually a magnitude four, four something aftershock that knocked down a big chunk of tower in the Sawtooth this summer. I don't know if you ever, if you came across that video. That was pretty interesting. That was in August, I think. So five months afterwards. But I think the knowing that you're going to have this aftershock sequence, especially when you're, you know, if you're going into a, a year where, you know, here we are, we're about to experience the entire aftershock sequence, not maybe one outlier having that on your radar either either as a traveler and as a forecaster seems pretty important as if things weren't uncertain enough <laughs> exactly yeah we could we could all use a little more uncertainty in our lives <laughs> holy cow right um, <laughs> well well uh it's it's just one more reason to create a little bigger margin in the mountains when when things are uncertain especially when you're expecting or not expecting aftershocks right yeah and that's one we had a lot of folks kind of contacting us and asking us so is the is the snowpack more stable now like what like are we are we good to go can i go do whatever do whatever i want and you know it's one of those things where it just you know i think conceptually yeah you've any you know anytime you give us an unstable snowpack time 
it's going to gain strength slowly in some, you know, in some sense. And anytime a snowpack is able to withstand some sort of loading event, it's showing that it has some sort of capability to hold up to, you know, what forces you're going to apply to it. But I certainly know for me personally, I didn't use any of those sorts of thought process to drive my, you know, my personal backcountry travel. And in the Satus, I just wrote off being in any steeper rock bound terrain because you don't really know what's rumbled loose above you or what's hanging out on a net, you know, a rock that got pushed off, just hanging on the edge or that big, that big spare inspire that collapsed after another earthquake. You don't really know how, how close you've gotten to that tipping point or, you know, you can't really identify those hazards. They're not, we don't, we don't have a framework for understanding them. So my, my response was just to not try to, not try to get cute with it. Go skiing, go skiing elsewhere. Right. Give it a wide berth. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like there wasn't any infrastructure damage within the towns of Stanley or, or Ketchum or any other towns within your forecast zone, any other damage that was sustained like to, to trails or any rock climbs out there? Yeah. As we had a handful of people, you know, Ben Vandenboss of the Avalanche Center and uh, some other Stanley locals were out after the event, taking photos on more of a mountain range scale. Um, it became apparent that there was quite a bit of rock fall, you know, the Satyus, I'm, I'm I'm imagining a lot of your listeners have heard of them and probably have seen them, maybe even been in them, but they're, uh, they're quite a craggy, uh, rocky Alpine type mountain range, kind of a smaller version of the Tetons. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of rock ball for sure. And a couple of pretty iconic, uh, rock features that you can just see from the highway were altered. Um, a lot of folks might've heard of the, there's probably a lot of overlap between avalanche folks and, and rock climbing. Um, but the finger of fate was probably the, you know, one of the, the top, most famous rock climbs in the Sawtooth and one of the top famous climbs in Idaho, really. And the summit block on that fell off to the top 30 or 30 to 40 feet of the, of the finger of fate, uh, climb fell down. And that was a pretty interesting pitch, um, right at the very top. Um, another feature that was visible from the highway and was also a less, definitely a less well-known rock climb, but, uh, a rock climb nonetheless was called the arrowhead. And that was a uh, protruding, kind of rock tower on a, on a ridge line, and that is completely gone. And so it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, as, as we move into summer and people are getting deeper into the mountains, there's certainly a lot of other rock climbs that are, uh, you know, there's, there's fractured blocks and things like that, and I bet we'll see a lot of, a lot of changes to those um, when we start trekking around in the summer. Well, I have you guys on the, on the line here. Anything new going on with the Sawtooth Avalanche Center? Yeah, this was a, a interesting year for us where thanks to some grant funding from the Idaho Department of Recs and some work on that our friends of the Avalanche Center group did, uh and they're they're amazing. They, you know, support us over fifty percent of our, our annual operating budget every year. So thanks to that, that grant money coming in, we were able to expand the forecast area by about eighty percent this year and adding a a fourth forecaster. So adding one person, we were a three person, three uh, full-time seasonal employees. And by adding that fourth, that you can really leverage any, any person over three. It, uh, it makes a huge difference in what you can get done. Um, Cause there's just that base workload that, that has to be done. That takes up a surprising amount of time. 
So we went from about 1,800 square miles to over 3,000, so 3,200 square miles, adding a lot of terrain in the western Sawtooths and up around Banner Summit, so the area around Copper Mountain and going north, uh, not all the way to Deadwood Summit, but a you know a big piece of terrain that's seen a lot of increasing use, folks from both locals from Stanley in that area and, and Loman, and really a lot of traffic from Boise with skiers and snowmobilers as well. So by adding that um, and really expanding our, our footprint, it's, it's changed things. We reconfigured all our zones at the same time. We didn't want to have add more zones just because it gets really confusing for people to figure out what zone they should be looking at. So we, we had a big kind of reshuffling to to try to, one, keep the number of zones the same at four. We have four zones. And two, to try to match the snowpack and snow climate characteristics for terrain as much as we can without drawing really uh, funny-looking lines. So you still try to have these simple shapes, but try to have the zones be, uh, you know, as similar as you can make them. And, you know, in this... Um, terrain that we're dealing with, things change really dramatically from a really wet kind of intermountain climate or wetter intermountain climate where you're, you know, seeing 30 plus inches of of water in the wetter places over the course of the winter. So, you know, four to 500 inches of snow. And then it dries out really quickly to the desert over about, you know, roughly 20 miles as the crow flies where you're getting, you know, nothing, five five to ten inches of snow water in some places in the drier parts of our uh, forecast area. So, yeah, it's it's been great adding that, that extra terrain and uh, being able to provide some, some products for the public in places that weren't served before, which in this area of declining federal budgets is, uh, I think, fairly unique. Most places are tending to contract rather than expand in this day and age. Sure. And, and you said that was mostly due to um, community involvement and funding as well as some state grants. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the community support that we have is, uh, it's amazing. Um, it's, uh, one of the really coolest things about working here is that the public is, is so much behind what you're doing and they're incredibly generous with their support of, you know, all aspects of our program, both financial and otherwise with our education programs, the, you know, you name it, the, the Friends of the Avalanche Center, this, this place wouldn't be the operation that it is without them, wouldn't be close. Well, uh, I've had several listener questions, I think, that you guys have answered. One last question, just looking at your forecast, and maybe, Chris, you could answer this. Um, somebody was asking, within your forecast, you have your elevation zones, um, and upper elevation, middle elevation, lower elevation. And this individual is wondering why there weren't um, actual elevation. So 7,500 to 9,000 foot, it would be the middle elevation. Why don't you list those specific elevations? Yeah, that's uh, that's a common and very tough question to answer. Um, it's something that we've gone back and forth on a lot. And... Um, you know, some of it is, I'd say actually a lot of that is like our, our terrain is maybe a, a little unique in that, um, you know, like some of our, you know, like a lot of our, our southern zones, our southern mountains are, you know, they're desert mountains. So there's, 
a lot of uh, sage covered hillsides where, you know, maybe even using like common terminology, like tree line above tree line. Um, like that means nothing because there's, there's not a single tree on this whole slope from the valley bottom to the summit. Uh, so create, and as a result of that kind of open terrain, um, we get a lot of wind effect and, you know, at, uh, you know, at mid elevations in some of those areas or what you would think of as mid elevation. So maybe, you know, a mountaintop might only be at 7,000 feet, but it's behaving like a mountaintop at 9,000 feet because it's open and exposed to the wind. Hmm. So it's uh, it is a common source of confusion. It's something we're constantly working to educate people on, and uh, and maybe we'll maybe we'll move in a different direction in the future. But um, right now, the way we tend to define for those, or the way we try to explain them, is that upper elevations are areas where the wind plays a dominant role. So you might see, uh, you know, obviously wind loading, but you also see you know variable snowpack depths. You see some places that are loaded and scoured. Uh, mid elevations are commonly where people are, are recreating where wind plays a little bit less of a dominant role, but has uh, a deeper, you know, thicker snowpack than the, than the shallower, thinner areas on the, on the valley bottom. Or one reason that we don't add specific numbers to those elevation bands is because just due to the geology of our, our zones or the differing geology between the zones, like that number would, those uh, elevation band numbers would vary from zone to zone. Like, like, for example, the Banner Summit Zone tops out at like below 9,000s. Like that's the that's the summit and the mountaintops. Whereas in our Eastern Galena Summit Eastern Mountain Zones, we have some peaks, a lot of peaks that are over 11,000, and some that are pushing or uh, right at 12,000 feet. So um, we just feel like that would be a bit more confusing for the public if we had different numbers for each of the elevation bands and all the different zones. That's uh, number. And another reason we don't add the numbers to the bands. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to to sit down today and talk about this unique event and and uh, best of luck sifting through some of the photos and and data that will be compiled over the coming weeks and months. Um, appreciate you guys and your time and your dedication to the craft. Thank you, Caleb. You're doing an awesome job with the show. We enjoy listening to it. Right on. Thanks. Yeah, I'll second that for sure, Caleb. You're uh, doing some great work. It's always a tie up there on my podcast list. And and thanks for the opportunity to to share some some of the interesting stuff that we saw with your listeners. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Looking forward to tying in with you guys in the flesh uh, in the future. Cheers. Well, thanks so much to Ben and Chris and Scotty for their time. Um, And I hope you enjoyed hearing about that unique event. Big thanks to all you, the listeners out there. Thanks for supporting the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thanks for spreading the word. Please tell a friend if you're enjoying the show. Get them hooked. If you're really enjoying the show, take it a step further go on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast hosting platform and give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And a huge thanks to the sponsors of the show, MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Thank you so much for your continued support to make this podcast happen. A little community announcement out there. The Bridgeport Avalanche Center 
is hiring a avalanche specialist and avalanche forecaster. The Bridgeport Avalanche Center um, will soon be advertising this meteorological technician position. It's a temporary seasonal position um, guaranteed to five months of work between November and April out of Bridgeport, California. To find more information about that listing, uh, you can go to USA Jobs or you could go to the American Avalanche Association's website as well. Speaking of the A3, thanks so much to the A3 for all your support to our community. And if you're not already a member, go ahead and become a member. It's a great organization to support. It is the web that holds us all together here in the United States at least. So um, become a member, join the community, uh, support the A3. The theme music for today was composed and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Chris, thanks for your contribution to the podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Check out more of his work and contact him for any of your illustration needs at www.miket.com. It's pretty crazy, but I'm already starting to think about the next season of podcast episodes. If you'd like to become a guest host or a contributor, please send me an audio file um, talking about your experience in the avalanche arena and why you think you'd make a great guest host. You can email that to me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com. We have an upcoming interview with a guest host, Sean Zimmerman Wall. Sean's going to interview Chris Bremer, the snow safety director at Snowbird Ski Resort, and that will be airing on Monday, April 5th. So be sure to tune in to Sean's great interview with Chris Bremer. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.